As I came up, he must have just caught me out the corner of his eye. I identified ourselves, Royal Australian Navy boarding party team, I need you to come with me. And all of a sudden he pulled out this, I'm assuming it was a machete, but it kind of looked like a giant Aladdin sword. It was huge and I called weapon. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Children. Going to children. I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt the top of us. She did say, you've changed. Soldier put everything on the line to help one of our blokes. Jodie Farmer is currently serving in the Royal Australian Navy. She welcomed me into her home to talk about her experiences at sea, including border security operations and what it means to her to wear the uniform. Jodie Farmer, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Where did you grow up, Jodie? All around Australia. I've moved all around Australia, but predominantly out of Brisbane. Tell me a bit about your childhood. Did you have any siblings growing up? Yeah, I've got an older brother. He's three years older than me. He also used to be in the Navy as well. He joined after me as a communicator, same as me. He medical discharged due to an incident he had with his eye. But uh, yeah, well, I had a great childhood growing up, moved around a lot, went a lot of camping a fair bit, did a lot of stuff that maybe kids wouldn't normally get to do. Didn't really grow up with, you know, dolls and girly stuff. I grew up with a pocket knife and pretty much an air rifle as well in my hands. Do you have any military history in the family? My grandfather's ex-serving Navy. He served for about six years. I helped with the Oberon-class submarines and the torpedo launching systems, but then, yeah, got out after about six years. So would that have been in the 60s? Yeah, probably 60s, late 60s. What sort of exposure did you have to the Anzac ideology or anything military growing up? Obviously, you've got your grandfather's service in the back of your mind there, but you and your brother both gravitate towards the Navy. What's the journey towards that? Well, uh, before I joined, I did eight years of real estate, worked in um, different offices throughout Brisbane. We got to a point in my life where I wanted to make a change in this world and wanted to make a difference. I uh, wasn't actually sure how to, to do that. I'd always had a great um, admiration and interest in the Australian military. I uh, loved being on the water, was on the water a lot when I was a kid. Decided I'd actually put my interest in with the Navy with the defence recruiting about 12 months before I actually had been approved to come in and then pulled it because it got a little bit daunting thinking I was going to be away from my family, so far away from like my family unit um, and all my friends. Uh, and then we had an incident where I had broken up with my boyfriend before I joined the military and thought, yeah, this is it. So put my application in again and got accepted. Actually, my first psych interview, my first psychological interview through recruiting, I actually got denied. But the recruiter overturned it, which was fantastic. Two weeks later, down to Cerberus. So being able to protect and, and represent my country is something that I feel very strongly about. I love Australia. I'm proud to support it and proud to uh, protect it. Having very minimal interaction with the Australian military, just knowing about them, seeing them on the news, seeing them around, especially on the Anzac days and, and stuff like that. I always looked up to people like that, thinking they've signed on that dotted line to make the ultimate sacrifice for my freedom, and I would like to do that. So you have this patriotism, you have this drive to serve, throw in the love of the water, and that adds up to the Navy pretty simply for you. Absolutely. Can we talk a bit more about the recruiting process, actually? that's um, I'm sure some people listening to this will be thinking about joining the ADF and any of the service branches, and the application process will be different for them all. But something like going through that psych interview, and then you've got the recruiter overturning it. Can you walk us through a bit more of that process? So I had gone through and had done my aptitude testing, and when I actually sat down with the recruiter, and luckily I got a recruiter that was Navy, I had pretty much everything open to me depending on what your selection process is as to what jobs you can have open to you in the military. My family, my father especially, had pushed me to go as an officer because he hired a lot of ex-military being in his job at Air Services Australia. And they all said to, you know, tell Jodie to go to go officer. But I sort of wanted to experience what it was like on the bottom to be able to lead from the top. Glad that I did. Didn't really understand what I was going to be choosing 
what job I wanted to do when I came in. And talking to a recruiter face-to-face was, it was excellent, but I, I had the feeling that they were just trying to fill numbers as well. My recruiter was actually a communicator like I am now. So I came in as non-category specific entry. So I didn't actually have a category when I came in and got to choose it when I was in recruit school, which means I got to actually talk to people on the ground, talk to my Kellex in recruit school, my chiefs, all that, to find out exactly what we do you know, what jobs are available to me. Got my three selections in recruit school. So I chose communicator as my first one, a combat systems operator as the second one, and a combat systems operator mine warfare for my third option. I got told when I was on my sea phase for a week, when we were out at sea on a training vessel that I'd got communicator. So I was pretty excited about that. But going through the recruiting process was a little bit daunting to start off with because I come from a a real estate background and them asking me to do things like, uh, I remember I had to go through my medical and I had to uh, be in bra and undies and duck walk around to make sure that all my joints were working and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So that was a little bit embarrassing, but I understand why we do it. What does the psych test involve? Uh, So the psych test asks you a lot. They ask you a lot of questions and then they actually have a one-on-one interview with, with a psychologist and... There was a few things that I had told him about my past, which was like over 10 years ago from that point of recruiting that this stuff had happened. And he told me that I had behavioural issues and that I wouldn't be a good fit for the military because I'd also not chosen a category. I'd wanted to come in as non-category specific entry. He didn't believe that would be beneficial to defence. After speaking to the recruiter, I was actually an army recruiter, the overall recruiter, told him, look, I just want to talk to people on the ground, have a bit more of a one-on-one with people about what the different rates are, what they do exactly, rather than what you see in the ads or you read on the internet. And he understood what I was talking about. And he said, yep, absolutely, I'm going to overturn this. So it was the best decision he ever made, I believe. So pretty good sailor. So <laughs> You've been able to contribute something to defence after all. Yeah, absolutely. No behavioural issues either. (laughs) Tell me about your training, Jodie. Okay, so I did my 11 weeks of recruit school down here at Cerberus. I think it was week three at about 6.30 in the morning. We weren't allowed to have our phones on us during the day. I got my cabin mates to lock in my locker so I wouldn't get caught and I was on my phone ringing my dad at 6.30 in the morning, crying my eyes out, telling him that I wanted to come home. It was very, I I would say in a way humiliating because I was a lot older than some of the people. I was 25 when I came through, 24, 25, and... I had 19, 18-year-olds running rings around me with the physical components and that was took a bit of a blow to my ego. So, yeah, rang my dad and said to him, look, I've made a mistake, I've missed home, I want to come home. He said to me, no, you're not coming home. What are you going to do when you come back, go into real estate? You're competing against younger guys and girls, so they might be a bit stronger, a bit faster, or just more fresh and vibrant in that sense, perhaps. But this is essentially your second career. You've had, you know, what was it, seven years? of Eight years years of working in a corporate environment. You're going to have streaks more maturity than they do, and I'm sure that would have helped you in other ways during the training. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I took things a lot more seriously in recruits. I obviously had a better idea of how to iron and make beds and, and shine shoes and stuff like that, where some of maybe the junior members didn't really, mum normally did it for them or so, you know, for them to cut those apron strings was a little bit difficult for them. After I'd actually had that phone call with my dad, um, I went about my day and that afternoon I got piped to, um, to our chief's office and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what have I done? Rock up to my chief's office, report, you know, recruit farmer reporting as requested chief. And she said, come in, shut the door. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm in so much trouble. What have I done? And she said to me, what were you doing at 6.30 in the morning? And I was like, oh my goodness, what do I do? Do I lie? You know, I, I'm, I'm not, a, not a deceitful person. You know, I'm not going to lie. You have to have a pretty good memory to be a liar, like my dad always says. So I said, oh, I was on my phone, chief. And she goes, I know, your dad rang me. I was mortified. I was like, oh my goodness, my dad had to ring my chief, you know, it was, and she said, what's going on? And I just explained to her that I found it quite difficult to be away from home. And I found it difficult to have the younger uh, members running rings around me. We sat down, we talked about it. My divisional officer came in and he was brilliant. He sat down and talked to me about it as well. And it completely changed my whole thought process about how to attack or how to do recruit school. And after that, it made my time so much more pleasurable. You know, the things where we were having to do leopard crawls at 4.30 in the morning in the sandpit. Normally I'm the last person that the other members have to come back and grab and bring me back into the, the safe bunker, as we would say. And that didn't seem so humiliating after that because I realised then that we're a team, we're a family, we have to look after each other. If I was in that position of having to come back to grab somebody, I wouldn't think of it as a burden. I would think of it as the fact that I'm trying to save my brother or my sister. So my thought process had changed after that meeting with my chief and my divisional officer. And the day of my graduation was the proudest day of my life. Where was your first posting? My first posting was onto HMAS Melbourne in Fleet Base East in Sydney. 
That's in 2009. Correct. Walk me through some of the roles and responsibilities you had on Melbourne. Well, my first two weeks of actually joining HMAS Melbourne, honestly, I didn't enjoy it. I thought I'd made a mistake. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. I got lost on the ship. I didn't know what pipes meant that were getting you know, piped over main broadcast. My first day, I got boned in by our buffer on board, you know, yelling at me for not wearing a hat. <laughs> I was like, it's my first day. You just give me a break. But HMAS Melbourne was going into a six-month refit for the SM2 upgrade for that standard missile upgrade that we were getting on Melbourne. Um, so there was a lot of pretty much gutting the ship to be able to put it into a dry dock. So we were working out of a building once we went into dry dock, but what I'd actually done was sourced out some sea rides um, with other ships because I wanted to go to sea. I wanted to experience what it was like at sea. So I went on my first time actually at sea was on HMAS Newcastle. And I think my first 24 hours out, I was sick as a dog. I was so sick. I ended up in the sick bay, giving me tablets. I had two bags of fluids, giving me injections just to try and stop me from feeling seasick. I thought to myself, you know what, I've lived my life on the water, like I'll be fine. No, it was as soon as we sort of got out, out of Sydney heads and got into a little bit of rough seas, oh, it was horrible. It was so consuming. Watchkeeping as well on, on board a ship was new to me as well. So I was used to just working, you know, day, what we call, we call them day walkers. So day hands working between daylight hours. So going into watchkeeping, which, you know, you'd have five hours on, five hours off, seven hours on, seven hours off, and technically only getting about six hours sleep a day, less sometimes. That was something new to, to be a part of and to get yourself into a good routine. But once you sort of got yourself into a bit of a rhythm, it was fine after that. Learning my job as a communicator and as a member of Ship's Company, I enjoyed that immensely. I loved it. I wanted to be in fire teams. I wanted to be the first one in Bar going down to go fight toxic hazard. I volunteered for everything so that I could just immerse myself in what sea life is actually like. On being seasick, how common is that for new sailors <laughs> to be um, heaving overboard? It's very common. We had a, uh, when I we actually sailed on HMAS Melbourne, we had a, a combat systems operator. And as soon as that last line came off the wharf, he was sick as a dog. So we, we hadn't, we were only like a metre away from the wharf and he would already be, you know, throwing up and stuff like that. Some of the, the old salts used to tell me that your brain remembers. I don't agree with that really because... <laughs> I still take seasickness tablets every night when I'm at sea. Not that I do get sick. It could be absolute glass out there, but I don't want to get sick because I still have to do my job. So that's the priority for me. Just in terms of a day-to-day -day routine, you mentioned what else are you having to cram into your day? Like, is there a physical training routine you have to keep in somehow? Or are you expected to maintain fitness on your own? Yeah, so we have on board PTI, so our physical trainers, and they, depending on how long you're at sea for, as to if they hold, you know, PT classes and stuff like that out on the flight deck. But yeah, it is individual readiness, so it is up to the member to maintain their physical fitness. It does get a little bit difficult sometimes, you know, if you're in a bad sea state or whatever like that, to be able to go down and use the gym, which is at the aft end of the ship. So normally when you do fives and sevens, your seven hours on is at night time. So if it's a little bit quiet, your leading hand of the watchers might be able to send you down to the gym or anything like that if nothing's going on. My first time out actually was on Newcastle. CF 36 had just happened, the one where uh, patrol boat boarding teams had boarded a vessel. The personnel that were on board the vessel had lit the fumes of some petrol coming out of their engines and had blown the boat up. So I was sitting on a broadcast watching the traffic come through, all the signal traffic with regards to that incident, and my heart was just breaking. I just wanted to be in there and I wanted to help. I was a seaman. I had no idea technically what was going on. I just knew that our personnel needed help and, yeah, it was, it was heartbreaking. And we didn't know whether we had lost any of our brothers or sisters or any of the people on board. We'd lost any of them either because they become our responsibility. But watching that come through, it was... I would say it was probably, it was like watching a movie. It was like watching, you know, a movie that you, you really enjoy. Like I'm a Star Wars fan, so it's like watching the new Star Wars movie. You know, you, you're, you're locked onto that screen watching that stuff come, once the information come through. And the thing is, is that you, you don't know how that, what the outcome is. You know, you don't know if, if your people are going to be safe or, or not. So, yeah, it was, it was quite interesting for my first experience. So to relate it to a Star Wars film, you're one of the guys in the, I'm not going to say the Empire, in the Rebel Alliance bunker. I'm dark the... side all the way, so. Okay, yeah. well then, so you're, on the <laughs> so you're on the bridge of the Star Destroyer, in the pit, watching the data come in, helping the Imperials, um, the officers guide their decision making, what's happening out there with the TIE Fighters. Pretty much, pretty much, yeah. Watching my TIE Fighter mates, you know. Broadcast for us is the constant transmission that goes out to all the fleet, all signal traffic that happens throughout the fleet, so... 
as the traffic is coming through, we're watching it come through up on a screen and then we're moving that traffic over for the rest of ship's company, you know, whoever it gets addressed to. So talking to my leading hands and my leading hands of the watchers, I had two guys. They were uh, a lot more relaxed than maybe what I was. I was very alert as to what was going on and you know, I'm saying the same to them, look, we've got more signal traffic about CF-36, this is what's happening. And they were just moving traffic over as it happens onto another network to be able to be dispersed throughout the ship to people that it has to go to. I don't think that they didn't take it seriously. I think that they understood that there was not much that we could do from where we were. We were on the East Coast, it was happening on the West Coast. And the fact that we weren't actually able to render any assistance being so far away. It's not our decision anyway, it's up to our, our command or our HQs. Their attitudes was maybe a little bit more relaxed. So they'd obviously have a lot more experience with this sort of stuff than what I would. I was a baby seaman, so, you know, if we had a weather report come through that said that we were going to have a storm, I'd think that was pretty exciting stuff, you know, and they wouldn't really think too much about it. But, yeah, relaying that traffic on and having members of ship's company asking me questions about it as well because certain information is obviously classified. We're not allowed to discuss it until the appropriate command or heads of department have decided that they're going to release that information to their people. That makes it hard because a lot of my ship's company had friends on, on that patrol boat that had rendered assistance and they wanted to know whether their friends, like their mates, were okay. And there's information that we just can't release until the captain has made the decision to release that information. So that makes it quite difficult. You mentioned earlier toxic hazards and fire teams. Can you tell me about some of those experiences? Ah. And that might be Newcastle, that might be Darwin, whatever you think is the best story to tell. So when I was on HMAS Melbourne, I was a part of what's called Standing Sea Fire and Emergency Party. So they're the ones that are the first responders through our day working hours. And then after hours, we have what's called SHIRT, Silent Hours Emergency Response Team. So they action that. As soon as an alarm goes off, they're the first ones on scene, which gives our Standing Sea Fire and Emergency Party time to get down to the scene to, to roll in over the top of them. I think one of the funniest experience I ever had was we were running an exercise in one of the aft CHT compartments, which is where our toilet waste gets managed. And uh, they had the exercise that we had a crack in one of the flanges there, and you know there was toxic That's gas a toxic coming. Hazard, yep. Yeah, toxic gas coming out, and we had a sailor that was down there conducting their duties and got knocked out. So we had a casualty in that compartment too. So as I rocked on down there to the scene to, uh, I ended up having to come in as team three, which is a casualty evacuation. And the girl that came in behind me was probably a little bit smaller than me too. So, and they said, yep, team three, in you go. They checked us, made sure we were all good to go. We got down to the scene, we bagged our casualty. The casualty that we had to evacuate from that compartment through an entire deck, the guy was about 130 kilos. So two females trying to do a hose lift or a drag of this gentleman was near impossible. So they ended up having to send another team in to help us out. It was just funny because they sent the two smallest girls in (laughs) to go and take this 130 kilo guy out. So we were just like, really? (laughs) Sounds like a practical joke setup. It kind of does, doesn't it? Yeah, but it was, I mean, it was a good learning curve for us actually to, because if if it is a safeguard incident, if I get down there and I realise that I'm not going to be able to physically move this guy or move this girl that's, you know, too heavy or whatnot, then I know that I can turn to my CNICs and say to them, hey, we need more people down here. And the problem with that compartment too was there was actually no lifting strop. We have a, a professional lifting strop that enables us to be able to remove people from compartments. And there was no lifting strop in this particular compartment. You had to drop flaps down on a ladder bay and do a hose lift and pull them out using a fire hose, which is so difficult as it is with a light person. I'm not saying this guy was fat or anything. He was actually a very big boy, so. But he's 130 kilos. 130 kilos, yeah, but I, I'm assuming that was all of, you know, muscle steel. Oh God, I hope he's not listening. <laughs> You'll know who he is. <laughs> Those 18 to 19-year-olds you were at recruit school with, obviously not all of them or maybe none of that particular group are on Newcastle with you are at sea or Melbourne when you're back there, but you'll have other young, fresh seamen of that age around you. How do you watch them grow and change over the course of their time at sea? So when you become an AB onwards, you become what's called a sea mum or a sea dad. So you take on the junior members that post on board and you take them under your wing and you look after them. My posting onto Darwin, I had a sea son. I love him to death, but he was a total mess when it came to rocking up on time in the right uniform, that sort of stuff. He used to rock up to the boat late, which is funny because he lived like five minutes away from the wharf. So I'm not sure how that happened. But watching him grow and watching my other sea daughters grow as well, 
it's a really rewarding experience, but you do take on a lot when it comes to them as well. So you take on the good and you also take on their bad. So if they're having a hard time in their personal life, then that affects you as well because you want them to be happy. It's like as if they're biologically your daughter or your son, you know, so when stuff happens to them, you take that on yourself and you hurt for them or you cheer for them or anything like that. You're happy with them. So working down here at Cerberus and as an instructor and watching the trainees go from start where they're fresh-faced, they have no idea what it's like to be a communicator, and you get to spin like your worries with them and you see that excitement in their face. They're so excited just to get into the fleet, to get going, and then you watch them grow throughout their course and you have what we have called a light bulb moment where you're teaching them a module, they're struggling, and then you explain it in a different way to them and then all of a sudden, bing, they get it. And that light bulb moment is really, really rewarding because you're like, oh, I did that. I, I taught them that. You still keep in contact with them when they get in the fleet and you get to see about their adventures. And I'm excited for all the trainees that come through because they have their whole career ahead of them. They have all new adventures and new experiences. If I could go back and start from the start again, I wouldn't change anything, but I just, I would think I would relish and appreciate my experiences so much more because they were exciting. I don't know too many of my girlfriends that have done stuff that I've done. It's also a real career of growth in that you're walking around the ship and you're not understanding what's been said over the pipes and stuff like that. But then the ship, you get to understand it, how it operates. You get to understand the atmosphere. It's uh, see how this great vessel actually is. This, it's like a complex organism and it's all working and functioning together. And that comfort of life on the sea really crystallizes for you with time and experience. You know, your ship's company, it's a family. We all look after each other. You know, you have the one cousin that you don't like or in the family or the, you know, the auntie or the uncle that you don't like in the family. But if you're in a port somewhere and anyone messes with any part of your family, you're going to protect that person. And whether you like them or not, they're a part of your family. And that's definitely, that's evident through any of the platforms that I've been on and any of the postings that I've been on. Are there any highlight experiences from your time at HMAS Darwin you'd like to share? We did some scattering of the ashes at sea, which was quite moving. We did that just off Newcastle. We had the families on the beach we were in quite close and we did there were six ashes that we had to scatter unfortunately it had started to rain while we were falling in out there we we're all in full ceremonials and as the padre was trying to empty the ashes over the side unfortunately the wind caught it and we got covered in a lot of ash families were very appreciative of you know being able to scatter their loved ones at sea and after hmas darwin jody you're posted to operation resolute Give me a bit of context for the operation and then specifically what ship you're on and your roles and responsibilities and some highlight experiences. Operation Resolute is to do with our border protection, so protecting Australia's borders from illegal entry vessels, foreign fishing vessels and drug boats. Previously, we used to be multi-crewing. So we'd be in Cairns, we had six Ardent crews and they would rotate through four boats, uh, HMAS Wollongong, Childers, Launceston and Bundaberg before she burnt down. We would have a vessel for about two months. So we'd rotate onto a vessel, have it for two months, which would be out on the line, which is on the western coast, out either at Ashmore Reef, Christmas Island, or down to Cocos Keeling. Pretty much riding the line back and forth, trying to um, wait for an, for an intercept of any vessels. And then we would have a month off, which we wouldn't have a boat. We'd be put into a crew facility. So we'd still turn to every day and, and do our jobs, but we would be doing them in a building instead of on a vessel. So my job on board when I was on, on a ship, when I was on Ardent One, was the AB communicator on there. I dealt with all of the networks, so the computer networks on board, visual signalling, so flags, Morse code via flashing light, all the connectivity to ship to shore, ship to ship. Did my first boarding on Ardent One. It was boarding just off Christmas Island. It was a nighttime board. The vessel was dead in the water and it was taking on water. So it was across the swell too and we had about four metre swells at the time, so it was pretty hairy. We went to do the boarding. The vessel was rocking that much because of the swell that you can see the backbone of the hull. I was a part of a sweep team then, so not a comms number on the boarding team, an actual sweep team to go and, and sweep the vessel to make sure that we've, we've located everybody on board so that if anyone ends up in the water, then we can account for everybody and you know, checking for dangerous goods, all that sort of stuff. I remember rocking up to the side of the boat that we were about to board. We were in one of the ribs and the boat was rocking that much. I'm thinking to myself, my goodness, I have no idea how I'm going to get on this boat. 
And I ended up just chucking my arms in the air and the guys from my boarding team just picked me up and just put me on the boat, pulled me up on board and was going through. And for my first boarding, I was terrified. I looked at everybody on there like they wanted to hurt me because I had not experienced anything like this before. It was my first ever boarding. And all the briefings we get as well, they don't sort of tell you to expect the worst, but they give you the worst case scenarios to better prepare you for what you're going to experience on these boardings. I think the worst part of that though was seeing the children There was children on board that didn't have life jackets on and the conditions on board were just disgusting. It was... So this is a people smuggling vessel? It was, yeah. It was a legal entry vessel. So I think there was about 78 people on this boat that probably could have fit about 15. So it was very cramped, very tight. We managed to get... This was before the turn back policies came into play. So we managed to get everybody off that boat because it was taking on water. So it was sinking and get them safely onto our patrol boat including the crew members, and then we had to stand sentry on them till the next morning until Customs um, was able to take them at 0800 on Christmas Island. And then we had to ferry them ashore to hand over to the Customs guys on Christmas Island. So for my first boarding, it was it was semi-uneventful. We had, when we were first inserted, one of the members of our engineering team with the boarding party, fairly hefty guy, sort of grabbed onto the side of the boat to pull himself up onto the boat we were boarding and broke off the side of the boat because it was just that dilapidated. It was, you know, it was just falling apart. But the one thing I noticed about that was not only did our people reach for our sailor so that he didn't end up in the water, was that the uh, illegals on board also grabbed for him too because they didn't want him ending up in the water as well. That was quite an an eye-opener for me, that boarding. Then when we, we were holding them on, on our vessel, we were keeping sentry on them to make sure that they were, um, you know, they were safe and, and everything. And uh, we, we normally take their bags off them as well. So if they have any weapons or anything in there, they're not going to harm us or harm other people or anything like that. Uh, and the next morning we were handing out their bags back to them just before we were about to transfer them over to the customs guys. And we'd already fed them as well. We, we always, uh, if we keep them for a period of time, we always give them water and we always give them food. And we've got baby formula on board if there's any children. One woman tried to give me her child at one point, take him. And I was like, oh, no, you keep him, you hold on to, you know, hold on to little Junior there. And we, so we were handing their bags back to them and they were pulling out, you know, packets of Oreos and, you know, just food they had smuggled in their bags and stuff, which is, that's fine. The thing that got me was that there was a group of young gentlemen right up in the back corner of the quarter deck that was taking food out and they were throwing the wrappers into our water. I'm not for that. That will um, affect our, you know, our sea creatures and stuff like that. So I end up yelling at them and saying, you know, do not throw anything more in our water, otherwise I'll throw you over the side to go and get it. The looks I got, I'm thinking from maybe their their culture, women don't talk to them like that. So they started to say stuff back to me. I didn't understand it because it wasn't in English. Uh, and it wasn't until my 2IC, which was my PO bosun, come up behind me and was like, yeah, you know, stop it. And backing me up, did they actually start throwing stuff in the water? So, And then when we went to transfer them, they wouldn't wouldn't look at me. Wouldn't. I went to try and help them onto one of the barges, like putting my hand up to help them on the barge. They wouldn't touch me. Yeah, I was the only female on my boarding team, so, yeah. It was, it was an interesting introduction to another culture. We gave the children lollies. Our chefs came out and gave us bags of lollies to keep our sugar levels up. We'd been up all night. And a couple of the boys, which was which was quite beautiful, they grabbed a plate and chucked a whole bunch of their lollies on, onto a plate and gave them to a bunch of kids. And these same gentlemen that were throwing rubbish in our water went over and just grabbed a handful of lollies and just ripped them off. And we were like, no, that's not me. Put them back. So the kids were, were pretty excited, but we filled them full of sugar before we transferred them ashore. So they were just like bouncing off the walls. Which it's was, a real gift you've given customs, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Enjoy, enjoy. Were any of the crew having any qualms about doing this kind of work? Was it difficult for you? It's difficult for us because of the children. That's the hardest part for us. It's seeing these, you know, these women and these children that don't have life jackets on and the husbands who have life jackets, you know, husbands and fathers that have the life jackets on, but these life jackets, are they're terrible. They've got probably two little bits of foam in it and that's it. That's not going to hold anybody up. For the husbands and the, and the fathers to think that they can hold their children up and hold their wives up in the water, they're not going to last more than five minutes, you know, and sometimes these people that end up in the water aren't recovered for a certain period of time that exceeds that five minutes. It's heartbreaking to see that on that first particular boarding when I had gone through into the wheelhouse and saw there was a husband and a wife and an 18-month-old baby and he had a life jacket on, the mother didn't, the child didn't. So we we always have our own set of life jackets that we can give to them because we want them to be safe. 
and first priorities for the children, of course. You know, so we had the children life jackets brought over, the mother actually the life jacket to put on the child because she was holding the child. And the father or the husband grabbed the life jacket out of my hand, took his you know, crappy life jacket and went to put this child life jacket on. It's this, it's tiny. I don't know. He wouldn't even have been able to get an arm in. It was that tiny. And I grabbed it off him and I said to him, no, it's for the child. Grabbed it back, gave it to the mother again and he grabbed it off her again and I ended up having to stand in between them until the, the mother had put the life jacket on the child because the husbands or the fathers believed that they would be able to be strong enough to hold their, you know, their loved ones up in the water and that's just not the case at all. Some of the people can't even swim. It's their first time they've seen the ocean. You know, and that's heartbreaking to me. And that seems to be a common consensus through all of our sailors that do Resolute is that the children is the hardest part, seeing that. Tell me about your first fishing experience. My first fishing boarding was actually a pretty scary one. So we boarded this fishing vessel. It was still under steam, so it was still had its uh, engines running. And once again, I was a part of sweep team. We... I went up uh, the side of the wheelhouse and I had my partner was an AB bosun that had, you know, like nine children or something. And every time we went to do a boarding, he'd always say to me, remember, I've got nine kids, you've got to watch my back. So I was like freaked out about that whole thing. And of course, you want to make sure that your brothers and sisters are safe. I went up beside the wheelhouse, but the wheelhouse was really wide and it was only a gap of maybe about 15 centimetres for us to climb up the side from the edge of the wheelhouse to the edge of the boat. We got up the side of this boat and there was a gentleman right up in the peak, right up on the bow, talking about... Uh, he was dealing with fishing nets and he mustn't have been able to hear us from because of the engines, the noise of the engines. As I came up, he must have just caught me out the corner of his eye and he said, we, you know, we identified ourselves, Royal Australian Navy boarding party team, I need you to come with me. And all of a sudden he pulled out this, I'm assuming it was a machete, but it kind of looked like a giant Aladdin sword. It was huge and I called weapon. I pulled my pistol. My partner came up behind me and tried to get in front of me. I'm thinking to myself, he's got nine kids, push him back. And then all of a sudden, all my boys come up over the top of the wheelhouse and they were all, you know, guns down on this guy because he, he pulled this sword. Fisherman freaked out onto his knees and put his hands behind his head. And we don't put people in that position because that's actually a stress position. So I'm telling him to, you know, to put the machete down and to get on his stomach. And uh, as he got onto his stomach, I had holstered my weapon. My partner still had his drawn and I went to move the machete away from him so he wouldn't have access to it. But I actually kicked it a little bit too far and it went into the water. So we cuffed him, put a jacket on him. Uh, he came up to me a little bit later after we'd, we'd, it was an educate and release. Uh, so educate that they can't take certain species off our, out of our waters. They can't fish a certain way like dynamite, cyanide, that sort of stuff. Um, the gentleman, the fisherman came up to me afterwards and uh, he grabbed my hands and kept putting them to his head and he was apologising in, in Indonesian and I, I don't understand Indonesian but he um, he was really, really, really sorry, this guy, that he, he thought we were pirates. He didn't actually realise what was going on and thought that we were trying to take over his vessel. I got back on the on the patrol boat and I couldn't stop shaking. I was, I was, I was scared. I was thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, like what if he came at us and didn't realise that we'd had, you know, we had pistols, I'd have to shoot him. You know, because it's either me or him or me and my, my partner and him or whatever. So, yeah, it was quite a daunting experience, actually. Some of those instances, Jody, are black and white, though. You encounter the illegal entry vessel and, you know, you've got to detain, process the people on that vessel. You've got a procedure to follow there. Not all encounters you have on Resolute would be so black and white, though, I'm sure. No, that's right. There's been instances where you've had to make the best judgment call at the time to be able to protect people. We had an incident out at Ashmore where we were holding a vessel that we had just intercepted that had illegal entries on it and we were waiting for a long-haul vessel to come in from Christmas Island. So a vessel that comes out, picks up our illegals and takes them back to the Christmas Island to be processed. And uh, we were holding the vessel at one of the mooring boys at Ashmore and we had a additional contingent on board, which is uh, our transit security element. So it's made up of about four or five other sailors. They're not a part of ship's company, but they complement our holding and steaming parties if we have to hold a vessel or steam a vessel. So we'd actually changed out our sentries on this vessel and I was oncoming. So I was coming onto the boat to start doing my six hours on there. So there was myself and another member of ship's company and then there was two of the, the transit security element or TSE guys on there as well and I was doing a head count to make sure I had all of my people on board. 
It was ridiculously hot out there too. It was blue skies, beautiful sun, you know, it was absolutely gorgeous if you wanted to uh, to get a bit of a tan going, but it was really, really hot. And I had done my head count and I was missing one member and it happened to be a child. And obviously, you know, with children, you know, I'm frantic to try and find, I'm trying to frantic to find anyone that I'm missing, but a child especially. And I remember looking up, up onto the bow and there was an elderly gentleman and he had, his, he had one of our blankets over the top of him. And I'm thinking to myself, he must be really, really hot. And uh, I'm still trying to find this child, trying to locate where this kid was. And I remember seeing a bit of movement underneath the blanket. I'm thinking to myself, oh, God, no. Oh, God, no. And I walked up to the elderly gentleman and I said to him, what's under there? And he ignored me and just sort of waved me off so he didn't want to talk to me. I said to him, remove the blanket. And he wouldn't just once again ignored me and, and just waved me off. And then I ended up having to grab the blanket pull the blanket back and there was the child that I was missing underneath that blanket performing certain acts to this elderly gentleman. I was mortified. I know that we have to be fairly sensitive to other cultures. I completely understand that. But while I'm there and I'm there under my care or under our Defence Force care, then that's not going to happen. So I separated the two of them. I sent the child into the wheelhouse, at least out of the sun as well. And the gentleman stood up to follow the child and... I ended up telling him that, you know, sit down, sit down. If you don't sit down, I'm going to make you sit down because that child's welfare was was obviously important to me. And it happened to be that a couple of my TSE boys come up behind me to support me if something had happened. Anyway, we ended up having to make him sit down, which was just, it, it's, a, it's a very minor use of force where we just put our, arm, our hand up on his shoulder and just push him down into position. And I said to him, you are not to go near that child. You are not to go near any of these children while I'm on here. And I reported it back to my command. I ended up having to change out with another member of ship's company. They came on board to take over from me while I had to do the reporting on it. I had to get briefed by my command because obviously being a sensitive sort of situation, how it would affect me or anything like that. I don't think it really affected me as much as it angered me because of the fact that it's a child and children are innocent. So that was, you know, something that I've taken on board and I've had to learn, you know, pretty quickly about other cultures and to be a bit sensitive about it and as much as you want to, because it angers you, you may want to, you know, release some physical pain on the people that are touching these children or, you know, abusing these children like that. You just can't do that. We're not in a place to do that. It's not our call. How common an occurrence would you speculate this is, these kind of encounters and you can only intervene so far? It seems to be a lot of the sailors that I have spoken to from other crews especially have, have had moments like that as well. By the sounds of it, I was maybe a little bit more restricted. I restricted my <laughs> how much um, involvement I had on it with regards to, you know, physical pain or anything like that. And obviously everything that we do is, is by the book, but you can't help but know that it affects you. When we, we talk about it as sailors as well, we talk about it together and, and the common consensus is everyone just talking about the fact that they wanted to put this person on their ass or they wanted to, you know, give them a good smackdown for what they've done to these children. After your first stint on Operation Resolute, you're deployed to Operation Slipper and the key feature here is you're not at sea but you're on the ground. Correct. Yeah, so I was deployed with the Force Communications Unit, deployed to the Middle Eastern Area of Operations, so primarily out of our Minhattan Air Base, which they call the gateway to the Middle Eastern Area of Operations. I believe there was 135 of us and there was only five of us that were Navy. The rest was half and half Army Air Force. My first introduction to a tri-service environment, well, I did two months of force preparation before we deployed and that was a massive wake-up call. I think I have a lot more appreciation for Navy now and how relaxed in some certain things like drill and that we are <laughs> compared to the other forces. I did care of the battle casualty, which was something very new to me, which is about looking after applying, you know, the appropriate medical and rescuing people that have been shot or have had IEDs blow up and applying you know, tourniquets and all that sort of stuff. And we had to practice on this pig meat and it was in Darwin, it was 40 degrees with like 80% humidity, it was crazy hot. And we're having to plug fake wounds that had fake blood coming out of it and stuff like that. And it was just horrid, It was I was mortified. And then we had to go on these things called the playgrounds and uh, they simulate an environment for us. And the first one, they put two Navy guys in the same squad. So there was like myself and the other AV and then there was a warrant officer 
army warrant officer and two, I think it was an army corporal and an army private. And they used to field stuff. They're used to this running around on the ground. We're not, we're a seagoing folk. So we know nothing about this stuff. And they've got these playgrounds set up. And for the first one, they made the other AV a section commander. So he was the one that was taking charge of us and pushing us out. It's all about, you know, giving covering fire to get our people that may have been injured and getting them back behind safe lines so we can apply first aid to them. So it was a bit of a new experience for us. But uh, so the first one we went out on and it was like a Three Stooges act for me. It was so embarrassing. But for the first one, it was we were all behind these. We walked out to the first playground and there was these two army guys up ahead and they're like, hey, going, come on down. You know, and we're like, yeah, no worries. Went to go down there and all of a sudden, yeah, Armageddon happens. The the two game players at the front, they dropped. They had been shot or anything like that. We had firings going on over the top. We had stuff blowing up everywhere. We were firing blanks, but we managed to hide behind these haystacks where the haystacks were classified as solid objects for us to, you know, to hide behind. And I was on the left-hand side of the section commander and the other guys were on the right-hand side. And he said to me, all right, all right, Jodes, you're going to go out, you're going to go across and you're going to get the guy on the opposite side. So I was going to have to get the guy on the right and get him behind safe lines and apply tourniquets and all that sort of stuff. He's like, we're going to give you covering fire. And I was like, okay, yeah, no worries, I got this. So he's like, all right, covering fire, three, two, one, covering fire. So all the members came up to give covering fire. And as I ran out, I ran straight in front of everyone's covering fire. So if it was real rounds, I would have just got my legs blasted off would have become another casualty. Anyway, I'm running and I'm running and I'm running and I trip over my own feet and I land face first into the dirt. My stire is straight up and down in the dirt. I was like, oh crap, did anybody see me? I look around and everyone that's running the simulation is like just laughing their asses off at me and they're all clapping. And I'm like, okay, cool. Let's keep doing this. So I ripped my stire out of the dirt. It had like bits of grass hanging out of the barrel and dirt. And I'm trying to clear that to, you know, to get all that out. And I was like, okay, let's do this. Get up, run. And I was like, okay, so I got up, ran, 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 went to slide behind this haystack. And as I slid, my boot caught on this tuff of grass. And I ended up flipping up and over and landing on top of the <laughs> haystack that I was meant to be sliding behind. And I was like, oh my God, did anybody see that? And I look around and everybody saw it. So I get behind the haystack and I'm there and I'm giving covering fryer and the casualties only about a couple of meters away from me and I said to him all right where are you shot mate and he's like I'm shot in the arm and I was like well good your legs still work get your ass back here and he was like okay okay cool down cool down calm down calm down so he gets back there and we get a 20k on him and we get him you know we get him safe we had to drag him back behind safe lines and that was I was exhausted by the end of that You've been doing a lot of acrobatics. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was pretty much a source of entertainment for everybody watching. So, and it was video recorded too. So that was even more embarrassing. Was the title of this short film, What Happens When You Put a Sailor on the Land? Exactly. That's exactly right. This is why sailors don't do shore stuff. So we get out, we finish the, that playground and we were only out there for four and a half minutes and I was exhausted. I was wrecked. I'm leaning on my stire just going, oh my goodness, someone just take over. I can't do this anymore. So we had to go into the second playground, which was, it was like a downtown Baghdad sort of thing. You know, you got cars on fire and upturned cars and all this sort of stuff. And they had a whole bunch of fake walls around there. And they made me the section commander. And I was like, did you not just see my, you know, my antics on the first one? Like, I'm a seagoing folk. We don't do this sort of stuff. No. No, they reckon they're going to get some good entertainment. Some more though. blooper for the blooper reel, yeah. So um, the corporal there, she was excellent. She was like, it's all right, I'll tell you what to do. We're going to frog leap your people out, get your people that you need, and then frog leap them back. And I was like, okay, cool. So I pushed all my people out. I'm behind this fake wall and there was a hole in the fake wall right there. And I'm listening to what the corporal was saying. I was wearing goggles and helmet and body armour and webbing and all that sort of stuff. And she's like, all right, you're going to go out. You're going to go out, you know, so I'm going to have to yell out, you know, covering fire, three, two, one, covering fire. Anyway, I heard this noise come out of the little hole that was right near my face. And all of a sudden, all this black soot just went poof. And I had my mouth open and it all went inside my mouth and all over my face. And what it was doing was simulating rounds on the other side of the wall. And as I turned around and looked at the corporal, I've just gone and like blown out and all this black soot has just come out of my mouth. She's wetting herself laughing. She's had to wipe my goggles off. And then she's like, go, go, go. So I've run out and I've slid in beside the other AB. We're releasing rounds, we're flying blanks, but because we're flying blanks, the styres keep jamming. So we're having to do a stoppage like every, you know, 10 to 15 seconds. I was exhausted at this point. Anyway, so I'm sitting there with the other AB and we're firing away, firing away, and I called a stoppage. And he came up to do, he just cleared a stoppage and he came up to start firing and I was trying to clear mine. And I looked up at him and I was like, oh my God, this is hectic. And he looked down at me and he's like, yeah, I'm exhausted. I was like, I know, right? And he turns and looks at me and he's like, laugh, he's 
killing himself laughing. He's got, you got black stuff all in your teeth. And it was all the soot. And it did not come out of my teeth for like three days. It was stuck in my teeth for three days. I brushed and brushed and I tried to get so much of that stuff out. Anyway, by the end of it, I was known as like the soot girl. And we were five minutes on that playground and I was wrecked. I was so tired. I slept so well that night. I was exhausted. And I'm thinking to myself, is this what the army has to do? This is crazy. Then they took us on a pack march around Robinson Barracks. We're running and all us Navy kids are at the back because we're not used to doing this stuff. It's 40 degrees. The sun's, it's like two o'clock in the afternoon. It's the sun's at its optimal. You know, what are you doing to us? So we were absolutely exhausted. Yeah, so we got through the rest of that. We actually, us Navy kids, really didn't have much of an idea as to what we were meant to be doing when we got overseas until we landed overseas. I was going to say, if this is how you're coping back in Australia, how do you cope when you actually get... Yeah, it's different, different story. So we were setting up the Army satellite systems and stuff like that, and I'm thinking to myself, is that what we're doing overseas? We're setting up the big satellite dishes and stuff like that. I'm like, okay, we'll, we'll give it a bash. We were learning how to, you know, how to set up their portable servers and everything. And I'm thinking, all right, maybe we're doing this too. We had our farewell parade before we deployed. My my parents came to that up in Darwin and I got interviewed. I was pretty much the face of my unit. Everyone was, I was in papers. I was all over the news. Embarrassing, actually. But uh, we had the farewell parade and then we deployed and landed on the 2nd of October over in the Middle East. We had to do four days of RSO and I, which is just gives you some ID range, firing range, all that sort of stuff, and more care of the battle casualty in an upturned army truck with, you know, 78 kilo dummies in there too. So that's always fun trying to drag those out and humidity 100. But we went on the IED range and um, we were sitting there getting our briefing and I was the very closest person to the IED range and they decided to just blow something up right next to me. Oh, my God, I... I freaked out. I was like, well, what the hell? It, everyone was laughing and I was laughing too, but then I was sort of like, oh my goodness, that was so close. And then we had to go out in the ID range and have a look around there and see what, you know, they were trying to give us an idea of what to look for when it comes to IDs and trigger lines and all that sort of stuff. And it was something so stupid, like a bit of alfoil that catches the light. It catches people's attention. I might go and pick it up thinking, you know, it could be money or something like that. And all of a sudden it's a tax short trigger line and boom, up everything goes. So that was quite interesting learning about that side of the, of the fence as well. Tell me about your first day on the help desk. First day on the help desk was a massive eye opener. So we were doing 12 hour shifts. So 12 hours on, 12 hours off, two days, two nights, and then technically two days off, but it's not really two days off because you have to do your recoils and stuff for um, your weapons or first aid or anything like that. Didn't really appreciate how busy it was going to be on there because you're supporting not only the bases in country, you're also supporting all the users that you have at Minhad and other countries as well. So we have, you know, the Kiwis had a compound right next door to us, which they were excellent. They were, they were family to us. We had the Dutch and Canadians and the Brits and the Yanks on there too. So supporting all them and we had multiple, multiple networks that we were having to support as well, including a joint operations room, the top secret areas as well. When I was learning the role from the person I was taking over from, she was another communicator like me, a sailor. I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I'm never, never going to remember all of this. But you get yourself into a bit of a rhythm. It was good. And I was actually able to hold night duties on my own. Didn't have to have anyone else on the desk with me. We worked pretty well as a team. All the help desks everywhere all looked after each other. Noticed a lot about the differences between the forces especially Navy, we sort of don't really worry about whose job it is. We just get the job done and then we work it out later because we don't have that luxury at sea if we've got a fire on board or anything like that. We can't turn around and say that's not our job. You know, we get in, get it done and we work it out later. Army, incredible, newfound respect for Army. They were regimental, they were professional. It was incredible. Some of the Air Force boys, however, they, I love Air Force, I love what they do, but some of the Air Force boys were sort of like, oh, that's not my job. You know, we're like, well, how about we just do it, we fix it, do what we need to do, and then we'll work it out later. I guess that's what it's part of being, working in a tri-service environment. I just couldn't get over how incredibly busy it was. And in a 12-hour shift, there were days when we wouldn't get a lunch break because we were just that busy. You couldn't leave the desk. You know, we would have a toilet break one once every 12 hours because it was just that busy. And when something happened in country where we would go into a comms lockdown, that just increased 
um, our workload and it was just incredibly busy. It was a really interesting experience to understand how much the knowledge level between the different forces as well about how much Army gets taught compared to how much Navy gets taught about the same programs or same software. These people that I deployed with, they're my family now. I have nothing but love for them and they've supported me overseas. So especially moments that were extremely, extremely emotional and trying for me. Would one of those moments have been the death of Corporal Scott Smith? Yeah, so Corporal Smith was my first ramp ceremony. So when we get to send our fallen brother or sister back to Australia, where the last point at Min had before they head back to Australia, I didn't know the corporal, but he was a brother and I did the catafalque party for his memorial before he'd sent him home and the honour guard. And it was extremely emotional. His parents had sent him away to go and serve his country and they were receiving him back in a box and that to me was just heartbreaking. I remember standing on the tarmac in at Minhad while we were putting him onto the back of a plane and we were all at attention and we were all saluting and I couldn't stop crying just thinking about his family and, you know, how his mother would never be able to hug him again and, you know, that, that's just heartbreaking to me. If I'd passed him in the street, wouldn't have known him. But it's not the point. The, the point is he was a brother in uniform and we were sending him home to his family in a box. He has a memorial at the Australian War Museum and we got to go there in 2016. I got to see his memorial. It was pretty emotional having that connection with him. One of my sea daughters actually, she went and grabbed me a poppy to put on his memorial. Beautiful that he's being remembered that way and he'll always be remembered in my heart because it was an incredibly moving and yeah, emotional time. Speaking of family, let's talk about your actual family. Your grandfather, who served also in the Navy, has seen you join and have years of service at Resolute, and by this point you're deployed to the Middle East as well. I'm sure he was very proud of his granddaughter and grandson serving the country. Yeah, my grandfather passed away while I was on force preparation before I deployed. Unfortunately, I wasn't actually able to go to his funeral because we were moments away from deploying. But he had been at my recruit school graduation. He had watched my brother graduate from recruit school as well. Unfortunately, in the later years of his life, he had suffered from Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. So there was a point there where he still believed he was in the military and he hadn't been in for you know, 20 years or something, 10, 20 years. That was heartbreaking to see such a strong man deteriorate like that and it was heartbreaking that I couldn't go to his funeral but I do believe that he was honoured with regards to his naval his naval service pretty well my brother went and yeah they had an ensign on his coffin and, and everything for him so that was brilliant but still heartbreaking that I couldn't go everyone in the family understood did you observe an Anzac Day or Remembrance Day while on deployment? Yeah, absolutely. We uh, we got to have a small contingent that got to attend uh, an Anzac Day in Kuwait. It was an incredible experience. Being my first time overseas, actually going to the Mio and then getting to go to Kuwait, I was, I think I was pretty lucky, but the first day we landed, we got to the hotel that the ceremony was going to be conducted and we landed the day before Anzac Day. Um, and we were about to do a practice run of catafalque party. The moment that we were about to step off, we had automatic gunfire going off outside the front of the hotel. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm, we were meant to go out that night and just experience and have a look around Kuwait and see what was going on. And I thought to myself, yeah, I'm not going out there. I'm going to stay in here. Anzac Day in Kuwait was absolutely incredible. It was amazing. We got treated like rock stars. Uh, everyone wanted photos with us. I did autographs. <laughs> it was crazy. We got treated like rock stars. So it was a really moving experience to have that and to have it in a country that I've never been to before and to represent my country in something like that. We had a bit of a funny moment, actually, when the Turkish representative was reading out. Um, uh, we were at rest on arms, so we were, you know, face, head down. We didn't have any weaponry. It was just, just straight drill. The Turkish uh, representative came up and gave his speech. And he, I think he, what he meant to say was the Australians and the New Zealanders, they fought. But uh, because of the, the language barrier and a very strong accent, he accidentally said the Australians and the New Zealanders, they fought. And we're trying to have, you know, we're trying to be serious. This is a serious thing. But some of us got the giggles while we were, you know, it was pretty disrespectful in some way, but it was something that you just couldn't stop. So we had to sort of realign ourselves again. And and, uh, and once you get the giggles, it's hard to shake. It is, them. yeah. But then so did the, the crowd as well. And there was probably about two to 300 people that were there, including other military forces. You serve in Operation Resolute for a total of five years, and you've already shared with me some significant stories from your first deployment. 
can you share with me any more stories either from that one or the ones that followed your time in the Middle East that made an impression on you? Yeah, well, there was a boarding that we had done out at Ashmore and before the turnback policies came into play, we used to take the illegal entries off, like the illegal people off the vessels and take them to get them processed through customs. And then the vessels, if they're unseaworthy, we normally gut them to make sure there's nothing that's going to hurt our waters and any of our animals and then we'll sink them. And there was a point where we'd had this vessel that we were towing out to go and sink and our technical department was on board prepping that boat to sink. And as we were like leaving the vicinity, we were were sailing past uh, the vessel that we just offloaded the illegals onto. We were playing the YMCA over the pipe, so it was on the upper decks as well. And there's my charge. Um, which is a chief stoker sitting on top of the boat doing the YMCA while we were passing all the other vessels and the and the illegals. Uh, when we were doing a sinking on a, on a Sri Lankan vessel, they, they let me have a shoot of a 50 cal and they gave me a thousand rounds and I don't think one round hit the vessel to try and sink it. So it's pretty good that I'm a communicator that doesn't have to swing off a 50 cal. Another patrol, we were about to take a vessel out of the water for a maintenance period and our captain, who was an incredible, incredible captain, just so knowledgeable, but he was like a two-year-old. You had to keep, you know, to keep him in check. You couldn't give him red cordial after three o'clock because he just wanted to do everything. If he wasn't blowing something up, he wanted to fish. And if he wasn't fishing, he wanted to blow something up. So we stopped in the middle of the ocean and he said to, said to us, all right, we're going to swimming stations and we're going to go clean the side of the boat before we take it out of the water. And I was like, are you serious? Like, what? So he gets us in the water. We've got ribs in the water with uh, guys having styres for sharks and stuff like that. And uh, we're right up on the bow and there's all of us sitting in these, like a bum sitting in these life jackets with scourers and scrubbing the side of the boat and trying to get it clean. And then next minute over comes this gurney hanging over the side of the boat and we're gurning a vessel in the middle of the ocean while I'm sitting inside of a life jacket with a a scour in my hand trying to clean the boat. And then it happened to be that same patrol that we were um, actually were heading back and there was there was heaps of pods of whales breaching um, all around us. It was beautiful. But I remember sitting in the comm center and then feeling the whole boat just shudder all of a sudden. And we'd stopped in the water and we raced up onto the bridge and we'd actually hit a whale. It's one of the risks of the job because if a whale you know, dies or whatever after we get hit it, we have to hang around to make sure it's not a navigational hazard, plus the environmental impact as well. You know, we don't want to be hitting these hitting whales. But uh, it was just heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking to see this. There was a mother, there was mothers and babies and stuff, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, we've hit a baby, and there was blubber and blood everywhere. And we'd hit the mother, unlucky, but luckily she was fine. So she survived. We hung around for quite a few hours to make sure that she was okay. And my commanding officer was uh, a little bit ticked off that we weren't going to have sushi that night. So we had one breach and almost land on the, on the folks or like right up on the bow area. And uh, it was a little bit scary. So were they reacting to your presence and the fact you'd injured one of them, do you think? No, they were just, it was just that time of the year and it was, you know, they were happy, I guess. It was beautiful water. It was beautiful green water. And I just think they were happy. They were breaching everywhere. It was excellent. We had a lot of people setting up on the upper decks just watching them breach everywhere. They were breaching on the horizon and everything. So yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. How did things change for you once the turnback policy was introduced? The boats obviously slowed down quite considerably, which, you know, is, is a good thing in a way because, you know, we don't have so many illegals coming into this country. We also don't have a lot of people dying at sea, which is, uh, it's a horrible thing to have to deal with that. But at the same time, our time out there, it, it I'm not going to say it's boring. It's just we have a mission and our mission is to protect our borders and intercept. And sometimes it's you're sitting out there for months and nothing's sort of going on. So you're going from boarding, you know, four in two days to boarding maybe one a month or one every two months. Yeah, it can sometimes get a little bit monotonous, I guess. You finished your time on Operation Resolute in 2016. And as we touched on earlier, you're now an instructor. Can you tell me more about that? For the, my last 12 months up on Resolute, I had spent about three weeks in total at home. Just got a bit burnt out, like most sailors do on patrol boats. Five years as well. Yeah, including an eight-month deployment in that, sorry. So we all just sort of got burnt out, so I just needed a bit of short time. Still wanted to make a difference, so I got offered to come down to Cerberus and be an instructor at communication school. Everyone said to me, it's going to be so rewarding. My father used to be an instructor at, out in civilian world. So he said to me, it's going to be pretty rewarding and didn't really understand that until I started instructing and got my first divisional class. And, uh, and yeah, it was uh, to watch them grow. It is massively rewarding and watching them in the fleet. And then you get to hear about their adventures and it's exciting for them. I get excited for them. I feel for them too. So if they, if they fail an assessment, 
I feel bad for them and I feel I feel hurt for them because I know that they're disappointed in themselves and they've worked so hard for all this and but we're trying to produce the best communicators we can to put into the fleet. That's what we're trying to achieve down at Com School. So my first 12 months was insane. I was so busy. I was working from home. Even on days off that I'd had, I was still working. I was running divisional classes and full-time instruction. Divisional classes is uh, you look after, you know, 16 bodies, so 16 trainees, everything to do with, you know, leave applications to change of names to, rec- you know, categorization with regards to if someone gets a partner and they want to get that partner recognized through defense. And then postings as well. So dealing with helping with their postings, anything really. And it's, you wouldn't think that it would be a lot being in, it wouldn't be so full on being an adult learning environment and the fact that they are adults, but we've got to remember that they're still, they're still green. They're still fairly new to the ways of defense. And this is what we're meant to be teaching them. And we have a lot of influence over them as well, being instructors. We have a lot of influence on the outlook on what, on, you know, all their expectations I'm very positive about my time in the Navy and very positive about being a communicator. And so I'm very excited for all of them about anything that they get to do. And I still get messages now from my previous trainees that said, like, you were right. You know, you were right. We love doing flag deck. We love being out on a a 10-inch light flashing Morse code at 2 in the morning. This isn't a normal job what we do. It's not necessarily a career. It's a lifestyle for us. We We become Navy. It's what we live, eat and breathe. And for these guys that don't know what to expect, I remember when I was a trainee and I just wanted to know everything about everything because I was terrified to get into the fleet. You know, when you're at Cerberus, you go through recruit school and you get to the senior division and you're a big fish in a small pond and then you get into cat school and you start off being a small fish in a big pond until you become the senior. You've been there for a while. Once again, then you become a big fish in a small pond, but then you get into the fleet and you're a tadpole in an ocean. It's huge, you know, you've got so much more stuff that you need to know. So I try to uh, impart that wisdom onto them and knowledge to say, look, make sure you wear your hat when you get off the gangway. This is what watches means. This is what's going to happen. This is how you're going to be. Make sure you take this to see with you. It's just stuff that you don't get told that's not down in a publication. Something as simple as the day that you get there before, like if you're about to sail, make sure you make your rack, like make sure you make your bed before you go on watch, you know, because if you come back off watch at midnight or something, and you want to get into your rack and you have to make your rack, you're going to wake people up around you. If you're going to have lollies in your rack, because everyone has lollies in their rack, you can go to any rack and pull out any lollies anywhere, really. Making sure they don't have wrappers on them. Like something stupid like that, because you'll wake people up. Just little things as well. The fact that, you know, they're going to get frustrated on their on their first postings and stuff like that, because they're not going to know what pipes mean. They're not going to know, I got lost. If I could find the one yellow pipe on board Melbourne, I could work my way out how to get to the commsend where I worked or get to my mess. Everything else I was stuffed for until I had enough time on that boat to become familiar with it. My first three weeks out on HMAS Newcastle, the first ship that I actually sailed on, every afternoon I would hear this, every evening I would hear this pipe. It said, bark chip, bark chip, bark chip. Close all upper deck screen doors and hatches, turn all internal white lighting to red. And I'm thinking, I know what I have to do when that pipe is made, but I don't know what bark chip means. For three weeks I had heard this pipe every every evening. I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if it's a code word. But I didn't have the, the guts to ask anyone because I'm thinking, oh my goodness, am I meant to know this stuff? And finally I got the guts up to ask my leading hand and so to him, like his name was Guilford. I said, Gilly, what does bark chip mean? He's like, what are you talking about? And I said, that pipe that we just heard. I said, what does, what does bark chip mean? And after he got up off the floor laughing at me, he turned around and said, it was darkened ship. We turn all the white lighting to red so that we're not being able to be intercepted or seen up on the, you know, because white light can be seen at nighttime. And I was like, oh my goodness, I'm so embarrassed. So telling the troops, telling my trainees that it's okay to ask questions. It's okay not to know something. You have, you know, the best rank is at that seaman rank because you can ask lots of questions. Being able to impart that sort of knowledge onto them. I did it on Thursday actually with, with my divisional class I have at the moment. I was telling them stuff about what to take to see, what watches mean, what you do during the watches, all that sort of stuff. And they're like, oh, I wish some, you know, we'd never get told this stuff. They never got told that information. So being able to impart that sort of knowledge on them was, uh, was excellent. We're recording this conversation in November 2018, so you've been in the Navy 10 years now. You joined because you wanted to make a difference. Do you feel you've been doing that? Absolutely. Operation Resolute, definitely protecting Australia's borders. Operation Slipper, absolutely representing my country and definitely down here at communications school. And you've not lost that drive to keep giving? No way. 
Not at all. What do you want your next adventure to be, Jodie? Well, my next adventure, I'm looking at so keen to go back to sea. It's not even funny. Like I, I love my sea time. I love being on the water. It's its own world out there. But I'm also looking at a transfer of category over to a neighbour police coxswain. So always wanted to be a copper, always. I'd actually applied to be a copper before I applied for the Navy but got denied because I had too many speeding fines. <laughs> Apparently it shows a lack of respect for the law. Me, I think it just shows that I can handle a car at high speeds. But anyway. But due to some time that I've, some incidents that happened when I was overseas, I am not that keen on having a, a weapon on my hip 24-7. So joining as a naval police coxswain would be a really, really great experience for me. Plus the way that the military police world is going at the moment, how we're becoming, they're going to be going under a joint. So everyone's, all the three forces are going to be working together. That's exciting. Jody, I asked to interview you for this podcast because you're a modern sailor, you've had a range of operational experiences, and you've seen and done a lot. Being a female service person, do you get asked the, what's it like being a woman in defense question a lot? Yeah, I do. And the same answer every time. It's not about whether you're male or female. It's about do your job and do it right. Looking back over the last 10 years of your career, how do you think you've changed? A stronger person in myself a lot more assured, a lot more confident. I have a lot more belief now that nothing can stop me, no matter what I want to do, what I want to achieve in my life. The friendships and the relationships I've made and the experiences I've had just add to that. And I couldn't, I couldn't do what I do if I didn't have the support of my family and my friends and the Australian public in general, because we are constantly thanked for our service. And it's, it's humbling and it's, it's beautiful to see. Well, Jody, thank you for your service and for your time today. Thank you. To see images of Jody's time in uniform, check us out on social media. We're at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram, at LOTL Pod on Twitter, and at Life on the Line Podcast on Facebook. Also, check out our website and sign up for our free newsletter, www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this conversation with Jody, please jump onto Apple Podcasts and rate us five stars. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>